A rally on Wall Street today as news comes out that inflation fell to 3.2% last month. Inflation has dropped dramatically after it rose to more than 9% in June of last year. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, November 14th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, long COVID and the brain. Scientists are beginning to understand why brain fog, fatigue and pain can linger for years after a person was first infected. And last year, large numbers of Southwest Airlines customers were stranded after a blizzard led to problems at the airline. Southwest says it's now better prepared. We have a lot of pride based on our 50 plus year history. So preparing to prevent something like that from happening again was and is an imperative. More on the changes Southwest has made coming up. It's 401. Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden is due to arrive shortly in San Francisco for a high-stakes meeting with the head of China, a country Americans widely view as the greatest security threat facing the United States, according to a Pew Research Center survey. Biden and his counterpart Xi Jinping are attending the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. Biden and Xi are slated to meet tomorrow. Russia's war in Ukraine is expected to be high on the agenda, as will the Israel-Hamas war. Biden is sounding optimistic about the release of additional hostages being held in Gaza. NPR's Asma Khalid reports Biden's comments come as the Biden administration has been seeking a pause in the war to allow potential safe passage. The president would not comment on a report that Israel and Hamas are close to a deal to release a large number of hostages, but he did sound hopeful. I've been talking with the people involved every single day. I believe it's going to happen, but I don't want to get any detail. His message to the family members of hostages? Hang in there, we're coming. Biden's top Middle East official is on a multi-day trip to Europe and the Middle East, which includes a stop in Qatar to focus on efforts to secure the release of hostages. There are an estimated 240 hostages being held in Gaza. That includes a three-year-old American toddler. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. Reinforcing Israel's claims, White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says... The U.S. has its own intelligence that Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad have stored weapons underneath al-Shifa hospital in Gaza. Now to be clear, we do not support striking a hospital from the air, and we do not want to see a firefight in a hospital where innocent people, helpless people, sick people, uh, are simply trying to get the medical care that they deserve, not to be caught in a crossfire. Hospitals and patients must be protected. Back in Washington, political rancor was on full display in different corners of the Capitol today. A fist fight almost broke out in the U.S. Senate between Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen and the head of the Teamsters Union, Sean O'Brien, in the middle of a hearing on labor unions. Sir, this is a time, this is a place. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, oh, stop it. Is that your solution, every poll? No, no, sit down. Sit down. You know, you're a United States senator. Sit down. That's independent Senator Bernie Sanders scolding his Republican colleague, as heard on MSNBC. On the House side, GOP Representative Tim Burchett accused former Speaker Kevin McCarthy of elbowing him in the hallway. You got no guts. You did so. They sat there and the reporter said it right there. What kind of chicken move is that? You're, you're pathetic, man. You are so pathetic. Burchett was among those who supported McCarthy's ouster as speaker. From Washington, this is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A series of bills that would legalize rent control and other tenant protections were in the spotlight on Beacon Hill today. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, legislators heard hours of testimony from advocates, renters, and landlords. Massachusetts voters banned rent control through a statewide ballot question nearly 30 years ago. But many now think it's time to bring it back as housing costs soar. Boston Housing Chief Sheila Dillon says the city gets calls from tenants being priced out of their apartments every day. These are heart-wrenching conversations as people have lived in their units for, for decades. But there's very little we can do without additional tenant protections. Opponents say rent control would slow much-needed housing production and hurt small landlords. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Massachusetts lawmakers are considering proposals to implement a four-day work week in the state. The legislature's Joint Committee on Labor and Workforce heard testimony on two proposals today. One bill would give tax credits to employers who join a pilot program for a four-day work week and report their findings. Another bill would require employers to pay overtime wages to employees who work more than 32 hours a week. The Palestinian flag is flying over North Andover's Town Common for the next three weeks. The town select board voted to allow it after a heated debate last night. The petition was filed by college student Selma Kayal. She spoke with WHDH last night. It's a flag that represents its people. It's a flag that represents a nation, the heritage of their people, their traditions, their culture. And it's not just, it, it doesn't represent a terrorist group. Rabbi Idan Irelander, whose congregation is in North Andover, noted to WBUR that Hamas is the elected body of Gaza. We cannot separate Hamas from the Palestinian people, and therefore, for many of us, the Palestinian flag today, unfortunately, represents Hamas, represents hatred, anti-Semitism, war. An Israeli flag flew over the town's common last month. The state has set a record for the number of piping plovers nesting on its beaches. Mass Audubon says 1,145 pairs of the endangered birds nested in Massachusetts this year. That's an increase of more than 500 percent since the state's endangered species program began back in 1986. At that time, there were fewer than 200 breeding pairs of piping plovers in Massachusetts. In the forecast, lots of clouds around right now, but we should have clearing skies tonight. Gusty winds down around freezing, maybe just below that for tonight. Then tomorrow, sunny, breezy, warming to about 50. This is WBUR. It's 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Coming up, our film critic takes a look at what's making 2023 such a great year for women-led films. It's not just Barbie, but first... Some good news for anyone planning to hit the road next week for Thanksgiving. Falling gasoline prices. That's right, gas prices dropped 5% in October. That helped slow down overall inflation last month. And pump prices have continued to fall during the first two weeks of November as well. For more on all of this and on the larger inflation story, we're joined now by NPR's Scott Horsley. Hey, Scott. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so why are gas prices lower now? We typically see some drop in gas prices uh, this time of year because with the exception of the holiday weekend, people are not typically driving as much. Crude oil prices have also come down thanks to weakness in the Chinese economy and easing fears of a wider war in the Middle East. 
So put that together, there are now 11 states where the average price of gas is under $3 a gallon. Wow. AAA's Aixa Diaz says prices nationwide could drop by another dime a gallon between now and Thanksgiving, just in time for the nearly 50 million people who are planning holiday road trips. AAA has found that gas prices don't really keep people back from traveling, even when they're higher. They just make adjustments in their budget in other areas. But when gas prices are lower, it's certainly a welcome sight for drivers as they're passing by gas stations. And some more good news for travelers. Airfares were also down last month, thanks in part to falling jet fuel prices. And the cost of hotel rooms in October dropped by almost 3%. Huh, good news. But, but how much did that help lower overall inflation, you think? Inflation cooled off considerably uh, in October. Consumer prices last month were up 3.2% from a year ago. That is the smallest annual increase in over two years. Prices were essentially flat between September and October. Uh, The sharp drop in gas prices was a big part of that, but we also saw falling prices for things like new and used cars. Uh, Rents are still going up, but not as fast as they had been. Uh, Economist Kathy Buschancic says the general slowdown in inflation is a good sign that the Federal Reserve is on track to get inflation back down to its target of 2%. We do think it's still going to continue to be gradual, but this this is a good outcome for the Federal Reserve. They would take victory that they didn't take a harsh recession to bring inflation down. You know, the Fed tends to focus on so-called core inflation, which strips out food and energy prices that tend to bounce around a lot. Mm-hmm. Core inflation is considered a better measure of longer-term movements in the economy. By that yardstick, prices last month were up 4% from a year ago. And again, that's the smallest increase in more than two years. But, but wait, is the Fed ready to say that it has won the battle against inflation then? No, not yet. Uh, The central bank is still on alert for any sign that strong consumer spending or economic growth might rekindle higher inflation. Fed officials also acknowledge that even when they do get inflation all the way back down to 2%, and we're not there yet, that won't necessarily mean prices go back to their pre-pandemic levels. It just means that prices won't be going up as fast. And that's why even with this drop in inflation, a lot of people are still grumpy. (laughs) But Elsa, you know who is not grumpy? (laughs) Investors uh, who are betting that the Federal Reserve is done raising interest rates. They were already betting that way before today's better-than-expected inflation report, and they're even more confident in it now. Uh, That uh, notion that interest rates may have topped out has sparked a rally in the stock market for the last couple of weeks, and that continued today with the Dow Jones Industrial Average soaring almost 500 points. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you so much, Scott. You're welcome. Some U.S. diplomats and aid staff are objecting to U.S. policy in the Middle East, and they're calling for a ceasefire in Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza. It's not clear if the opposition is widespread within the U.S. government, but Biden administration officials say they are talking to staff and reaffirming Israel's right to respond to the October 7th Hamas attacks, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Retired diplomat Gina Abercrombie Winstanley says she's fielded many questions from current staff about whether or not to sign on to dissent cables or letters. Her advice is to make sure the language is tempered and there's really room for debate. That's a reasonable question to ask as we see, you know, whether it's academia or professional spaces that emotions are so high that measured, thoughtful, informed discussions 
are increasingly hard to come by. Abercrombie Winstanley, who recently worked on diversity issues at the State Department, says there is a lot of unease among U.S. diplomats about what she called President Biden's very tight bear hug with Israel as Israel's campaign in Gaza ramped up. As this goes on, this is not just Israel's war, but the U.S. and Israel's. The State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development won't say how many objections they've received or how many of their employees have signed on. USAID officials have been meeting with staff across the Middle East to hear their concerns. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been meeting with a wide range of employees, too. He encourages people to provide feedback. He encourages people to speak up if they disagree. It doesn't mean that we're going to change our policy based on their disagreements. He is going to take their recommendations and make ultimately what he thinks is the best judgment and make his recommendations to the president about what we ought to do. Miller says Blinken has done a lot of work to get humanitarian assistance into Gaza and push for humanitarian pauses. One of the newest letters from political appointees across the government says the U.S. should call for a ceasefire instead. The State Department's dissent channel goes back to the Vietnam War days and allows public servants to express their views privately. More recently, they've addressed Afghanistan, Syria, and the Trump administration's Muslim ban. Retired diplomat Pete Romero says the dissent on Gaza is unusual because there are so many letters floating around. This has completely changed now because you've got uh, all of these dissent channels uh, or messages that leak to the public. And in this toxic partisan environment that we've got now, it's really difficult to have that kind of exchange that the dissent channel was designed for. Romero is focusing on dissent in his next podcast, The American Diplomat, and says young people in particular are asking how to have a real debate about Israel and still be team players. Abercrombie Winstanley says she knows that emotions are high, but says the job of a diplomat is to find the way forward. As opposed to casting blame or focusing on the terrible things that have happened terrible things that have happened to Israelis and terrible things that have happened to Palestinians. Both of those things are true. It's our job to figure out or help figure out a way forward. So far, just one State Department official has quit over U.S. policy toward Israel. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. It was a hot pink summer at the movies. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. And critic Bob Mondello says you're not imagining things if you sense that Hollywood's fall has also been led by women. Nuns, pop singers, superheroes, there have been 11 weekends so far since Labor Day, and in more than half of them, the number one film in cinemas not only starred a woman, but for all practical purposes had no significant male role. Something doesn't feel right. A demonic nun terrorized a Catholic girls' school through most of September in The Nun 2. It's okay to be scared. I'm scared, too. Pop star Taylor Swift then revived everyone's spirits in October with her Eras Tour concert film. Are you ready for it? And now November's being rescued by not one, not two, but three female superheroes in The Marvels. We're a team. Oh, no, 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 we're not a team. We're not a team. Team or not, they and their fellow movie heroines have easily outdistanced the male-led number one fall films at the box office. In fact, they've had an impact on ticket sales this year that, if not quite unprecedented, is at least noteworthy. Barbie, all by herself, contributed $1.4 billion to Hollywood's bottom line worldwide. This is the best day ever. It is. 
is the best day ever, and so is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Disney's Little Mermaid remake brought in another half billion plus. Something's starting right now. Taylor Swift and Nun 2 each contributed roughly a quarter billion dollars, and though The Marvels is busting fewer blocks than hoped, it's still bringing in enough that those five films alone will have made close to three billion dollars this year, making them decisively. Now, it's possible to read too much into this. In each of the weeks that a woman-centered film led the pack, most of the other films in the top ten were centered on males. And with Hollywood still recovering from the pandemic, box office revenues totaling $25 billion last year, $3 billion is still a fraction of the industry's business. Still, it says something that the top moneymakers more than half the time this fall have been women. Some things have been happening that might be related. They are, you might argue, the result of something Best Actress winner Frances McDormand set in motion five years ago in her 2018 acceptance speech at the Oscars. If I may be so honored to have all the female nominees in every category stand with me in this room tonight. The actors, Meryl, if you do it, everybody else will, come on. The filmmakers, the producers, the directors. Dozens of women stood, and it has changed the landscape a bit. The Marvels is directed by a woman, as was Barbie, directed by Greta Gerwig, who may well get her second directing nomination from the Academy. So was Saltburn, opening this week, which might get a second nomination for Emerald Fennel, all of whom took heed, as did many others, of the way McDormand closed out her speech, urging everyone to insist on more diversity behind the camera by adding a clause to their contracts. I have two words to leave with you tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, inclusion rider. Drawing direct lines of cause and effect can be tricky, but the Motion Picture Academy subsequently introduced inclusion standards for awards consideration, and while some have wondered whether these strategies are effective, to take just one measure, according to the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, women had substantially more leading or co-leading roles than usual in last year's biggest box office hits, 44%, a historic high. Might that have happened anyway? Sure, it might have, as Hollywood's Ken's would probably argue. Let me show you. Here, let me show you. Here, let me show you. But do we really want to give them the last word? Don't blame me. Blame Mattel. They make the rules. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. This morning, news came that inflation is down. This afternoon, Wall Street closes way up. The Dow grew by one and four-tenths percent. S&P had its best day since April. It gained one and nine-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq soared nearly two and four-tenths of a percent. More business news coming up. WBUR supporters include Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. Sunbugsolar.com. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. EMD Serono is moving its headquarters from Rockland to the Seaport District of Boston. Serono is the American drug development arm of Germany's Merck. The Boston Globe says the company will occupy two floors of 200 Pier 4 Boulevard with an option to expand. There are about 400 people in the Rockport facility now, the Rockland facility that is. The company says all will keep their jobs, although many will work remotely or hybrid. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. 
Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts November 24th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Innuendo and Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for homes and offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including homeless shelters, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Months or even years after getting COVID-19, some people still have neurological symptoms like pain, fatigue, and brain fog. It started to occur to me that this could be permanent. You know, this might be as good as it gets. NPR's John Hamilton reports on what scientists are learning about how long COVID affects the brain and nervous system. When the pandemic struck the U.S. in 2020, thousands of nurses got sick. Michelle Wilson was at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. I worked in the PACU, which is the pre and post surgery. I got people ready for surgery and woke them up after their surgeries. And I loved that job. It was great. Wilson got COVID in November. When it got bad, she went to the emergency department at her own hospital. I had bilateral pneumonia and I was in sepsis by that time. My blood pressure was really low and I had irregular heartbeat and I got admitted upstairs for a couple of days. The infection was affecting her lungs and also her brain, including circuits that control blood pressure and heart rhythm. Today, three years later, Wilson still isn't back at her nursing job. One reason? Her memory. You know what? I forgot your question. I forgot where I was going. Uh, oh. <laughs> and this happens. I have trouble with word retrieval, concept retrieval, and sometimes, like, remembering where I was going. So do other long haulers. Long COVID affects millions of people in the U.S., and many, if not most, have neurological symptoms. Scientists say one reason is that COVID seems to weaken the barrier that usually separates the body and brain. Dr. Ziad Al-Ali sees lots of long COVID patients in his work at Washington University School of Medicine and the VA healthcare system, both in St. Louis. Recovery is rare, and when you talk deeply to patients, they've actually adjusted to a new baseline. They used to walk the dog, you know, two blocks, and now they do only half a block. They used to go to a couple dinners a week with friends, now they only do once a month. Early in the pandemic, doctors saw what COVID could do to internal organs. But Elalise says it soon became clear that the damage doesn't stop there. Unfortunately, long COVID, as we know it now, it can affect nearly every organ system, including the brain. When that happens, patients report a wide range of symptoms. Al-Ali says about 40% have trouble sleeping at night or staying awake during the day. People experience sleep disturbances. And as a result, they wake up fatigued, even minimal exertion, you know, puts them into a state of you know, profound fatigue. And poor sleep, he says, can also contribute to pain. Pain is a big deal. And it's not really only, oh, my wrist is hurting or my knee is hurting. It's really almost like the, the whole body aches. Michelle Wilson, the nurse, says when she first came home from the hospital, she was in agony. The pain across my chest and in my arms was so bad 
that I slept on this couch like this with pillows under both arms because I couldn't stand my arms to touch my chest. Now Wilson is able to do things like make breakfast or take a shower, but she still hurts, which could signal ongoing inflammation or damage to nerve cells that sense pain. Wilson's doctors aren't sure. That's because scientists are just beginning to understand what COVID does to the brain and nervous system. Dr. Troy Torgerson is at the Allen Institute for Immunology in Seattle. There's still a ton we don't know, so I would say we're still a little ways away, but we're nibbling away at it bit by bit. Torgerson and a team of researchers studied 55 people who had symptoms at least 60 days after a COVID infection. The team analyzed blood samples, looking for proteins that signal inflammation somewhere in the body. We saw persistent ongoing immune activation in about half of the long COVID patients that we studied. Torgerson says it's not always clear what's causing the immune system to respond. But once it does, it can affect the brain even if the virus itself doesn't infect brain cells. For example, immune cells or antibodies from the body may cross into the brain and damage neurons. Or the infection may activate a special set of immune cells in the brain itself. Torgerson says the symptoms of long COVID can resemble those of autoimmune diseases, which occur when the immune system mistakenly attacks healthy cells. We certainly see brain fog in other diseases. So, for instance, in lupus, it's one of the signs of neurological lupus. Fatigue is another common symptom in autoimmune disease and something Michelle Wilson deals with every day. Sometimes I am less able to do something than my 87-year-old mother. She is the one who's like always telling me to sit down and she's running up the stairs for me so that I don't have to do it. And that feels terrible. To understand how long COVID affects a human brain, scientists have been studying mice. Dr. Robin Klein of Washington University in St. Louis has been working with mice that develop a mild version of the disease. And those animals do have cognitive deficits a month after they were infected. They no longer have virus, they're no longer ill, but they can't remember and recognize things. Klein says in these animals, the infection appears to weaken the blood-brain barrier, allowing the body's immune response to affect brain cells. She says the result is inflammation that causes subtle but significant changes in the brain. There's not a lot of dead cells. It's not like there's a multitude of dying neurons. What there is, is there's elimination of the connections between neurons. In other words, synapses, the brain's wiring, which is critical to memory and thinking. Klein suspects that inflammation is causing a similar kind of damage in the brains of people who get long COVID. And she says this can occur even in people who don't get very sick. You and I may handle different viruses differently, and I may end up getting more inflammation in my brain than you because we have a different genetic makeup. Klein says one way to protect the brain during an infection may be drugs that reduce inflammation. And studies to test that idea are already underway. In the meantime, she says, vaccination offers a way for people to reduce their risk of long COVID. People like Michelle Wilson, though, are hoping for treatments that will repair their ailing brains. Before getting COVID, the only medication Wilson took was for a thyroid condition. Now she relies on a daily cocktail of prescription drugs to control conditions like nerve pain. I'm on uh, three medicines for that. And then it also gave me high blood pressure and tachycardia, so I'm on some cardiac meds for that. When I ask Wilson which drugs, she pushes herself out of her chair to fetch her pill organizers. So this is so what... You, so you are showing me not one, but, but two, two different 
boxes of yeah. meds. Morning, noon, night, and bedtime. And that's what I take on a day. Until researchers come up with something better. John Hamilton, NPR News. And tomorrow on All Things Considered, Zach Condon, the creative force behind the band Beirut, lost his voice in 2019, then found it again in the long, freezing cold night of Norwegian winter. On this record, I really allowed myself a lot of vocal freedom because I was trying to enjoy it and, and really savor the moment. The music he made there, his new album, Had Cell. Come back for that conversation tomorrow on All Things Considered. You can listen on the radio, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, the National Climate Assessment is the most consequential U.S. climate report. It's released every five years. It analyzes how climate change affects every aspect of our lives. The latest report is coming up. Tonight, the Boston Bruins look to improve on their best-in-the-league record. They're in Buffalo to take on the Sabres. Game time is 7 p.m. Celts are off until tomorrow night when they take on the 76ers in Philadelphia. Lots of clouds around now, but should have clearing skies tonight. Cold temperatures just below freezing. Then for tomorrow, should be sunny, breezy, about 50 degrees for a high. Could make it all the way to 60 degrees on Thursday, a nice day, with sunshine once again. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Fresh City Kitchen, offering a thoughtful approach to catering your special occasions. FreshCityKitchen.com. I'm Deepa Fernandez. After decades of violence, peace-building efforts continue in Colombia, but some families there still worry about their safety. We have some illegal groups who are still fighting the government or they are kidnapping people. Colombians now living in the U.S. are advocating for protections next time here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. California's governor says weeks, not months, to repair a critical interstate in downtown Los Angeles used by hundreds of thousands of daily commuters who've been forced to find an alternative route. Governor Gavin Newsom says a badly damaged stretch of elevated expressway does not need to be demolished. Relatively good news considering the alternative, a full demo, which would have been many, many months. Uh, we were looking at that five to six month period as the alternative, three to five weeks now. Officials believe the fire that closed the expressway over the weekend was arson, but no suspect or motive has been mentioned. The governor says a modest amount of lead was released from the burning of vehicles, but none of the stored materials were considered toxic. Interstate 10 is also used to transport goods through the vital ports of L.A. and Long Beach. 
The top Democrat in the Senate says there is bipartisan support to continue military funding for Ukraine, but NPR's Franco Ordonez tells us it likely won't happen until after Thanksgiving. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he's heartened by House Speaker Mike Johnson's plan to avoid a government shutdown, but he says the plan is far from perfect. The proposal does not include funding for President Biden's four national security priorities, Ukraine, Israel, the Indo-Pacific, and the U.S. border. Schumer says one of the holdups is reaching an agreement on border security. We have Democrats and Republicans working together to try and come up with a border security package that will have bipartisan support. Um, but we have to get this done, and as soon as we come back in Thanksgiving, it will be a very high priority. But Schumer emphasized that the support is there, and he expects all four will eventually be approved in a combined package. Franco, Ordonez, NPR News, the Capitol. On Wall Street, stocks finished broadly higher today. The Dow up more than 400 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Harvard Medical School is not accepting donations of bodies for research, at least not for now. This is after the former director of the morgue at Harvard was accused earlier this year of stealing donated body parts and selling them. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning has more on the donation program and on the status of a review of the thefts from the morgue. Harvard commissioned a review of its anatomical gift program back in June. It's supposed to recommend ways to better safeguard donor bodies. That report has twice been delayed. A Harvard spokesperson said it will be released, quote, in the coming weeks. In the meantime, the school has paused any new donations, as noted in the program's voicemail. If you are calling to report the death of a registered donor, please note that we are not accepting donations at this time. Harvard says the pause isn't impacting the anatomy labs and should be lifted soon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. Families of those who had planned to donate bodies to Harvard are being referred to Tufts Medical School instead. A Plymouth family that was trapped for several weeks in Gaza is expected to return home today. According to a family member, Hazem and Sana Shafi have arrived at Logan Airport this afternoon. The family with three young children made its way to Egypt earlier this month. They've been trapped in Gaza after fighting broke out in the region early in October. The city of Lowell may consider an ordinance similar to one that Boston Mayor Michelle Wu used used to clear the Mass and Cass area of the homeless. Tonight, Lowell City Councilor Corey Robinson will ask the city manager to initiate an ordinance that outlaws camping on public property. He also wants the homeless population to have a voice in developing this new policy. It's only right we, we invite members of the, the group that potentially will be impacted the most to the discussion and be part of or offer them to be part of the solution and the compromise to address these challenges. Robinson says approving the measure similar to the one in Boston sends a message that Lowell will not allow homeless camps to be established on public green spaces. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. 45 degrees in the Boston area now, clear tonight. It should be down around freezing, maybe a little bit below that. Then for tomorrow, sunshine, breezy, should be a nice day, inching up to about 50 degrees. Thursday, even nicer, sunnier than uh, tomorrow, with highs making it possibly up to 60 degrees. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
And from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. What exactly does a healthy economic relationship look like between the world's top two economies? Well, that's one key question that President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping will discuss when they meet privately tomorrow. They're both attending the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco this week. Biden has cast the relationship between the U.S. and China as one of stiff competition, but doesn't want that to tip into conflict. Last week in San Francisco, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen met again with her counterpart in the Chinese government to help lay the groundwork for this week's meeting. Secretary Yellen joins us now to talk more about that. Welcome to, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for inviting me. So I know that last week both countries pledged not to what's called decouple their two economies, but the U.S. does want to de-risk the relationship. What does de-risk mean to you in the plainest terms? Well, let me just start by saying that we have a deep economic relationship. Uh, we have healthy competition, and we think we both gain from trade and investment that takes place, although it really needs to be on a level, level playing field so that it's fair to American workers. But de-risk means that um, we should have supply chains that are diversified. We saw during the pandemic and then later when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine that um, having too much concentration of one's suppliers um, can lead to problems and that it's better for our economy to have more diversified supply chains. In the case of China, there are areas, particularly in the area of clean energy, wind, solar, uh, electric batteries, the minerals that go into them, um, that we're highly dependent, overly dependent on China. And we want to diversify through a process I've referred to as friendshoring. So, of course, we want to do some things ourselves in the mm -hmm. United States, but we want to continue to trade, but rely on a broader set of trusted trade partners. And we're meeting here in San Francisco, uh, the Asia-Pacific Economic uh, Conference, right. um, and we have a broad range of well, trade me, partners that we're me, working let with. Let me talk about cultivating trust among those trusted partners. I know that the Biden administration has made some moves in the name of national security that China takes issue with, like I'm talking about restrictions on U.S. investment in certain Chinese tech sectors, prohibiting the export of certain tech goods to China, tariffs on imported Chinese goods, sanctions on Chinese firms. How do you explain those decisions to Chinese leaders when they are accusing the U.S. of trying to stifle their economic growth? Well, I think that's a very important issue, 
and I made clear in my conversations with my counterpart, Vice Premier, uh, that um, we are not trying to stifle China's economic progress. And as the president and I have both said, um, we think um, greater income and growth in China is good for the globe and good for the United States as well. But we will take actions to protect our national security. And when we do that, um, we will try to target them narrowly um, so that we're not in imposing broad harm right. on China's economy. Okay. We so have, then, if I may, in the last minute we have left, so then what are areas of economic cooperation that China and the U.S. have agreed upon? That's, that's very important. We realize that for the sake of the globe, we need to work together. We've agreed to do that with respect to economic growth, the impact of our economies on the entire global outlook, financial stability, regulatory issues, climate and debt problems in low-income countries. Those are all areas we've agreed to work together on. That is Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you. The holidays are approaching, and for many people, that means hopping on a plane to visit family or friends. Last December, an estimated 2 million Southwest Airlines customers were stranded after a blizzard led to technical problems at the airline. Now, Southwest says it's better prepared to handle severe weather. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports. Last Christmas Eve, Emily Cornelius was on her way back to Denver after visiting family when she landed in Chicago for a layover and her flight got canceled. She spent the night with a friend, rebooked for a couple days later, then that flight got canceled too. By then, Southwest Airlines was in the midst of a major holiday meltdown. Baggage claims overflowed, customer service lines clogged up, and many would-be flyers were left stuck in the airport. We either fell off in the airport or we were spending money that we don't know if we're going to pass on options to be outside of the airport. Cornelius ultimately took a Greyhound bus back to Denver, getting there five days after she was originally scheduled to be home. Southwest Airlines ended up canceling more than 16,000 flights over a 10-day period last December. A major blizzard snarled travel across the U.S., but as other airlines recovered, Southwest suffered a series of technical setbacks that led to a wave of delays and cancellations. With Thanksgiving and the December holidays fast approaching, the company now says it's ready for the year-end rush. Here's Southwest Airlines Chief Operating Officer Andrew Watterson talking about the December chaos on a recent earnings call. It weighed heavily on all of us here at Southwest Airlines. We have a lot of pride based on our 50-plus year history. So preparing to prevent something like that from happening again was and is an imperative. To better prepare for ice and snow, Southwest bought new de-icing trucks and other equipment and increased staff at airports in colder climates. The airline said it also updated its crew scheduling systems after workers who were manually modifying schedules last December got overwhelmed by the flood of cancellations. They are making a lot of moves to try to get ahead of this for Christmas. That's Clint Henderson, managing editor of the travel website The Points Guy. I'm just not sure everything's going to be in place if there's a big uh, meltdown like there was last year. Still, customers appear ready to fly with Southwest again. The airline says it has a higher percentage of seats booked for this December's holiday period than it did last year. 
Henderson says many travelers won't hold a grudge against an airline, even if they say otherwise. Consumers are really price conscious more than they are uh, sort of looking away from an airline over issues that they've had in the past. If you are flying for the holidays, Henderson says there are a few things you can do ahead of time to ensure you have a smoother trip. Download your airline's app to your smartphone. It might make rebooking easier. You should also check the weather forecast, Henderson says, and have a backup plan just in case you get stranded. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Climate change is making life more expensive in the U.S. It's making people sick, and it's affecting cultural traditions that Americans hold dear. But fighting climate change also presents opportunities to reshape the country for the better. Those are some of the key findings in a new federal report out today. Alejandra Borunda from NPR's Climate Desk reports. The newly released National Climate Assessment says that climate change now touches every region of the U.S., and it's making Americans' lives harder. Here's President Biden announcing the report today at the White House. Last year alone, natural disasters in America caused $178 billion, $178 billion in damages. They hit everyone, no matter where, what their circumstances but they hit the most vulnerable the hardest. That underlying message isn't exactly new. The first assessment detailed the risks from human-driven climate change back in 2000. But this new report comes at a different moment in the country's relationship with climate change. Climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe is one of the assessment authors. Many more people these days are worried about climate change. Many more people are aware of the impacts. One of the starkest impacts is that climate change is making Americans sick. Climate change is harming human health. That's Mary Hayden. She's the lead author of a chapter on health. We tend to focus just on physical health. For example, extreme heat sends people to the ER. Wildfire smoke causes asthma attacks. But when we ta- we're talking about flooding and displacement, when we're talking about wildfires and displacement, we're talking about people's mental health. That's especially the case for young people who are having their lives shaped by climate disasters and anxiety about the future. The anxiety partly comes from losing the places, cultures, and traditions that people love most. For example, salmon that tribes have lived with in tandem for thousands of years, they're in trouble from climate change. Recreation, like skiing or ice fishing, that's harder now. But Heho says this assessment also shows the many ways the country can and is choosing a better future. Every tenth of a degree of warming we avoid, there's a benefit to that. And that's just such an encouraging and empowering message that our actions matter, even tenths of a degree matter. Hey-ho says the upsides to action are huge. Transitioning away from fossil fuels would save Americans a lot of money. Less warming means fewer billion-dollar disasters. It also means less work hours lost to extreme heat and fewer ER visits from wildfire smoke. A lot of climate solutions can also help with other problems. Air pollution, for example. Having fewer coal-burning power plants or diesel trucks means cleaner air. And here's an example from Ali Zaidi. He's the climate advisor for the White House. A product of our 
racist housing policy of the past, redlined communities today have more pavement and fewer trees. And so it's literally hotter there. Um, folks feel it more in their bodies because of that historic injustice. So planting trees in formerly redlined neighborhoods is partly a climate solution. It's also a way to make up for longstanding environmental injustices. Climate change is harder on poor people, people of color, and marginalized groups. That's a powerful new theme in the National Climate Assessment. But the report also says that climate change gives the country an opportunity to rethink the status quo and maybe make life better for a lot of Americans. Alejandro Borunda, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Nice to have you with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we go to Michigan, where Arab-American voters could be key in deciding the 2024 presidential election. Tonight, the Boston Bruins look to improve on their best-in-the-league record. They're in Buffalo to take on the Sabres, game time 7 p.m. Celtics are off tonight. They take on the 76ers in Philadelphia tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Greener You, a design-build firm that plans, engineers, and builds solutions for getting to carbon neutrality. GreenerU.com. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. 45 degrees in the Boston area. Should be clear tonight. Some gusty winds, cold ones too, as temperatures fall to just below freezing. Then for tomorrow, bright skies, breezy, inching up to about 50 degrees. On Thursday, should be a lovely day. Could be sunny with highs almost around 60 degrees. It's 449. WBUR supporters include Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose and now in Beverly. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston. Almost three years after far-right groups stormed the U.S. Capitol, the men and women who protected it still bear scars from that day. I have this anger about that day and the denialism. Listen to Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn talk about his memoir documenting the events of January 6th on next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In the political conversation about trans youth rights, sports teams have been a major focus. Nearly half of U.S. states ban transgender youth from competing on sports teams that fit their gender identity. People who support restrictions on trans athletes often say they are protecting girls' sports by keeping trans girls from playing. But the same restrictions can also affect transmasculine athletes. NPR's Embedded podcast has a new series about trans youth called All the Only Ones. It includes the story of a teenage athlete from Ohio who feels forced to sacrifice a part of himself in order to keep playing his sport. Here's host Lane Kaplan-Levinson. And a note, this story mentions suicide. Good, Parker. That's okay. It's still your balls. White. To an outsider, field hockey practice can sound hectic. Still white ball. Still white ball. But for the teenage field hockey star Parker Parker... 
running up and down the field is where he feels most at peace. Just imagine a blank piece of paper that's black and there's just nothing. That's what it feels like. <laughs> kind of go quiet, if that makes sense. Kind of just a blob that exists. And what feels so good about that feeling of like going black, of like nothing? Because I never feel like that. <laughs> I feel like I'm so stressed out 24 seven. There was just one problem. To play field hockey, Parker had to join a girls' team because there was no boys' team for him to play on. Parker knew he was a boy, but he was assigned female at birth, which made things like changing in the locker room really uncomfortable. With field hockey, you're constantly, like, reversing your penny, changing the color for, like, teams and stuff. And I kid you not, like, I would look at my feet and I would just do it as fast as I could because I'm like, I hate my body. I wanted to be a guy. Like, I, I just knew. Despite that, he still got into it. But it meant that when he played with his high school team, he had to put on a skirt. Have you asked to wear a men's jersey? Honestly, I'm too scared to ask my coach that for high school. How come? I'm, it's just a lot of stuff of like, there's a lot of repercussions if you do something wrong. Like, next thing I know, I'm not starting. And I started all four years. So I didn't want to do something wrong and question anything. And so I just kept my head down. By sophomore year, Parker was feeling the consequences of keeping quiet about his trans identity. My mental health just, it, it went downhill. It was really bad, dealing a lot with suicide. I did not want to be here at all. He ended up in a hospital for a week. The psych ward really didn't help with anything about me being trans. Like, they didn't understand it. They told me that my dysphoria could be coped with, and I'm like, I can't really cope with it. Like, I need gender-affirming care. Field hockey was the only thing that helped Parker cope, and his season was about to start. So to try to get released as quickly as possible, he hid his trans identity and pretended to accept the advice of the doctors. During Parker's senior year of high school, he started to notice politicians in his home state proposing new restrictions that would affect trans youth. The Ohio House has passed a bill that would ban gender-affirming care for minors and places restrictions on what sports transgender athletes can play. And Last year, Parker testified at the Ohio Board of Education meeting against an anti-trans resolution that had been introduced. If you ban me from playing the sport I love, I will lose a piece of myself. Field hockey is my life. So I asked for the state board to veto this resolution so my identity and humanity can be respected. All this had Parker wanting to leave Ohio for a more trans-friendly place. His best ticket out was field hockey. He could get a scholarship that way. But to play on a college team, he'd have to make the same bargain that he did in high school because it's a women's-only sport. If he wanted to keep playing field hockey, it would have to be on a women's team. So when Parker was trying to get recruited, he was worried about being out. I essentially had to dead name myself with coaches and like I didn't tell any of the coaches I was talking to that I was trans. I just like was thinking, I was just like, but what if they don't recruit me because I'm trans? So you basically went back in the closet, right? Just to go through this process. Mm -hmm. It was awful. 
I kept asking myself that, like, why are you doing this? Like, why can't you just be honest? And I mean, it just meant so much to me that like, you know, I had a place to play in college that I just ignored that and pushed it down. Cause I just, I guess I just wanted a place to play. He got recruited to play for Merrimack College right outside Boston. Once he committed, he came out to his new coach who was super supportive. But his coach's support isn't enough to allow Parker to live as his full self. The NCAA has specific roles that, like, I can't take tea and play on a women's team. If he did, he'd go over the limit of testosterone that's allowed for trans men playing women's field hockey. I could transition in college, right? But I wouldn't be able to play. So what am I supposed to do? Parker probably wouldn't be in this situation if he played a sport that had a men's team. Say, if he were a swimmer. He very well could swim on the college men's team and take tea. That's because trans-feminine athletes are the primary target of the current moral panic, as people are more concerned that they have some sort of unfair advantage. Parker knows this. People aren't accepting of trans athletes, especially trans athletes that are women. Even though trans men aren't the main targets, he's swept up in these sports policies. And they're forcing him to make a painful choice. Parker could either wait years to transition into the body he wants so that he could keep playing the sport he loves, or he could transition into the body he wants but lose the sport he loves. In both cases, he has to give up a core part of himself. I just, like, don't want to have to separate myself. Like, I feel like I've had to with just, like, being an athlete, but then, like, kind of being trans on the side. Like, I kind of just want to exist as a whole person. For now, he's figuring out what it means to be the first person like him. From what I'm aware of, like, I'm the first trans guy to play Division One field hockey. I'm the first. And I think it's going to pave pathways for other kids. If I can give that to some other kid who's going through it right now, then it's worth it. That was Parker Parker talking to Lane Kaplan-Levinson, host of All the Only Ones, a series from NPR's Embedded podcast that explores the history of trans youth in America. You can find more of these stories on the Embedded podcast. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films, presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, its Secure Our World program is aimed at encouraging people to turn on multi-factor authentication. CISA.gov slash Secure Our World. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. 
CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clouds from today should depart tonight, leaving a clear sky, cold winds overnight, down to about 31 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny, dry, slightly milder than today has been, about 50 degrees. And then for Thursday, sunny skies, we could hit 60, maybe even higher on Friday. 45 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, advancing together by using collaboration to drive new discoveries. More at umassmed.edu slash together. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. More than 11,000 Palestinians have died in Gaza, and President Biden's full-throated support for Israel has angered many Arab Americans. Where's his humanity? You know, is he that much of a Zionist that Palestinian lives don't matter to him? More from Michigan, where Arab American voters could help sway the 2024 presidential election. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, supporters of Israel gathered in Washington, D.C. today. They came to speak out against Hamas's attack on Israel last month, and they demanded the return of hostages Hamas is still holding captive. And Johnny Cash was a legend of country music, but he transcended genres. He's giving us every human emotion that we hope to have, we deserve to have, and then when we have them, it fulfills us. A new book celebrates the man in black and his most iconic songs. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Israel has released a video saying it shows Hamas had a military compound beneath a hospital in Gaza City. NPR's Greg Myrie reports it comes as Israel is trying to force the evacuation of other hospitals, which have largely ceased to function. Israel said it uncovered the Hamas compound underneath the Rantisi Children's Hospital in Gaza City. Israel forced this hospital to evacuate over the weekend and has now entered it. Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari is an Israeli military spokesman. Underneath the hospital, in the basement, we found a Hamas command and control center, suicide bomb vests, grenades, AK-47 assault rifles, explosive devices, RPGs, and other weapons. NPR can't independently confirm these details, and Hamas denies it was operating from the hospital. Israel says it expects to find more Hamas compounds under other hospitals it's evacuating. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy physically shoved a Republican lawmaker who voted for his ouster in a confrontation on Capitol Hill today. NPR's Claudia Grisales witnessed the exchange that the shove forced the member Tennessee Republican Tim Burchett forward. Former Speaker McCarthy was walking by Tennessee Republican Tim Burchett when Burchett suddenly lurched forward from the force of the push. Burchett said McCarthy had just elbowed him in the back and he ran after the California representative to confront him. You got no guts. You did so. They sat there and the reporter said it right there. What kind of chicken move is that? You're, you're pathetic, man. You are so pathetic. Laughing at one moment, McCarthy denied shoving Burchett. Burchett said it was the first time he and McCarthy have communicated in any way since October, when Burchett voted for McCarthy to be removed as speaker. Claudia Grisales. NPR News. 
the Capitol. House is voting with another government shutdown looming. New GOP Speaker Mike Johnson was forced to reach across the aisle to Democrats when hard-right conservatives revolted against his plan. It's basically the same political move that cost Kevin McCarthy his speaker's post. Inflation came in lower than expected last night or last month, rather. Here's NPR Scott Horsley. Consumer prices in October were up 3.2% from a year ago. That's a smaller annual increase than the month before and reflects a bigger slowdown in inflation than forecasters had expected. A sharp drop in gasoline prices during October gets much of the credit. Gas prices tumbled 5% last month, which helped to offset rising rents and other expenses. Even stripping out volatile food and energy prices, though, so-called core inflation was also lower than the month before. Investors already expected the Federal Reserve to hold interest rates steady next month, and today's encouraging inflation report is likely to reinforce that. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa The issue of rent control is back on Beacon Hill. State lawmakers are considering bills that would allow cities and towns to limit annual rent increases. The issue has gone to the legislature after efforts to get rent control before voters on a statewide ballot stalled. Representative Mike Conley tells WBUR's Radio Boston the state needs limits on rent hikes. The extreme radical thing is to be in this ongoing housing emergency and have absolutely no limit on how much a landlord could raise a rent or on how much wholesale displacement could happen. Opponents, including Amir Shazaveri of the Property Owners, Small Property Owners Association, say rent control would make the housing market worse off. It leads to the disrepair of housing and it makes it nearly impossible to remove non-compliant tenants, not only to the detriment of owners and their properties, but also to the detriment of the other cooperative tenants. Rent control has been banned in Massachusetts for nearly 30 years. The state has its first veterans advocate. Colonel Robert Notch will lead the new office, created as an independent state watchdog for veteran services. The office has the job of ensuring compliance with laws and regulations as they relate to veterans. Earlier this year, the state appointed its first ever secretary of veteran services. Members of the autism community in Massachusetts are celebrating Thanksgiving early with a sensory-friendly community meal in Somerville tonight. The Friendsgiving Dinner, hosted by the city and by the group Autism Eats, will be held at Mount Vernon Restaurant. Leonard Zahn is one of the founders of Autism Eats. He says tonight's gathering is meant to provide non-judgmental group experience for everyone who chooses to attend. Any behaviors, any outbursts, any iPads playing too loudly, people running around the restaurant is completely acceptable, encouraged, The individuals have the ability to be themselves and enjoy the night to the fullest in the way that makes them the happiest. This is the first Friendsgiving event Autism Eats is hosting in Massachusetts. There'll be another dinner in Newburyport on Friday. 45 degrees in the Boston area. Clouds from today should depart tonight with clear skies, cold winds, temperatures around 31 degrees. Then for tomorrow, sunny, dry, a little bit milder, up around 50 This is WBUR. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Well, it's official. Wisconsin has a new state cocktail. And it's not your traditional old-fashioned. We'll learn more about it in a minute. But first, this story. 
President Biden is in San Francisco tonight to host the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. Tomorrow, he'll have a private meeting with Chinese leader Xi Jinping, his first in a year. That's a long time for two superpowers that also happen to be the world's top two economies. NPR's John Ruich is in the Bay Area to talk us through what is at stake when they meet. Hey, John. Hey, Ari. Things between these two countries are in bad shape, and this past year has not helped. So what does this meeting mean for bilateral relations between the U.S. and China? It means a lot. It's an opportunity, actually, for Biden and Xi to reconnect after quite a long time uh, and also, you know, attempt to renew their relationship. You know, they've met many times uh, going back to when they were vice presidents. The challenge, of course, is that the relationship between China and the U.S. is very contentious, right? The Biden administration has cast it as fundamentally competitive. Xi Jinping himself has explicitly said he thinks the U.S. is out to encircle China and to thwart its development. Trust is just in short supply. So both leaders, you know, seem to be approaching this meeting as a step uh, towards stabilizing the relationship. President Biden was asked at the White House earlier today how he would define success for this meeting. And here's what he said. To get back on a normal course of corresponding, being able to pick up a phone and talk to one another if there's a crisis, being able to make sure our military still have contact with one another. So in a way, just having this meeting is an achievement, right, in terms of creating a positive step towards reestablishing just communication between the two governments. It sends a positive message to officials up and down the bureaucracies of the two countries that there should be more of this communication. It also sends a message to other countries that, hey, we're trying to rein in the risks. Okay, so this is also about signaling. But here in the U.S., tough on China seems to be a dominant theme from both parties. And the presidential election is just a year away. So how does that factor into things at the summit? Yeah, the meeting, I mean, Xi Jinping coming to the U.S. is controversial. There are people who don't like the fact that he's going to be here. There are going to be anti-Xi protests on the streets by members of the Chinese exile community, as well as others here in San Francisco. And there's been political pressure on Biden around the meeting and also for just not being, quote unquote, tough enough on China in general. But administration officials say this meeting does not represent a softening of their approach to China. And they point to opportunities for the U.S. and China to cooperate and for the U.S. to influence Chinese policy. For instance, in cracking down on fentanyl precursors, a lot of which come from China. There's talk of a possible agreement on that this time around. But Yun Sun, who's at the Stimson Center think tank, says if there's a deal on something like that, there's always going to be a trade off with China, especially now with a relationship in such a bad shape. So they are able to, they have the ability to do something on this, but um, but whether, well, it's not going to be free, there will be political costs associated with it. Right, political costs, she says. So ultimately, what do you think could come out of this meeting? Well, this meeting's expected to run several hours. They have a ton of things to talk about, but in terms of concrete outcomes, China has been mum. The Biden administration has downplayed the idea that there's going to be any kind of big blockbuster deals or anything like that. So both sides are trying to manage expectations. That said, you know, it's possible that military to military dialogue will start to resume sometime soon. Uh, That was suspended after then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last year. Fentanyl precursors have floated to the top uh, of the Biden administration's agenda. It's an issue that they are really keen to advance. From the Chinese side, you know, at the very least, they're going to want reassurances from President Biden that the U.S. doesn't support independence for Taiwan, which is having a presidential election in a couple of months. That's NPR's John Ruich in San Francisco, where Biden and she are meeting tomorrow. Thanks, John. You're welcome. 
Michigan is a state to watch in the 2024 presidential election. Trump won it in 2016 and Biden in 2020. But for Democrats, the Israel-Hamas war is throwing the support of Michigan's large Arab-American population into doubt. They're skeptical about voting for a White House that they say disproportionately supports Israel while doing little to protect the lives of Palestinians. NPR national political correspondent Don Gagne reports from Detroit. In 2020, Arab Americans turned out big for the Democratic nominee, Joe Biden. That's one of the reasons he carried Michigan on his way to winning the presidency. Now, three years later, it's a very different world for Biden and for those voters. Free, free Palestine! This was at a recent rally downtown on Detroit's riverfront. That chant and loud calls for an immediate ceasefire were common. But so was this. Biden, Biden, you can't hide. Biden, Biden, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. We charge you with genocide. Thousands attended the rally. Speaker after speaker decried American military support for Israel in its war against Hamas in Gaza. There's anger over a U.S. veto of a United Nations resolution calling for a ceasefire, which the U.S. and Israel say will give Hamas time to regroup. Democratic State Representative Abraham Ayash, who is the majority floor leader in the Michigan House, spoke and cited the Declaration of Independence. America, you promised the world that all men and women are created equal. Yet somehow we find billions of dollars to dehumanize Palestinians. Watching nearby was longtime Arab-American business owner and civil rights activist Nasser Beydoun. He used even stronger language in describing President Biden. Where's his humanity? You know, is he that much of a Zionist that Palestinian lives don't matter to him? Beydoun says he's a former Republican turned Democrat who supported Biden in 2020 and who's currently running for Michigan's open U.S. Senate seat. He supported Biden in 2020, but says Democrats are failing Arab Americans. He lost a constituent that voted overwhelmingly for him in Michigan. And if he wants to see re-election, he needs Michigan. And right now, he doesn't have it and I don't think he'll ever come back from it. Michigan State University political scientist Najita Lajavarde, whose research includes Muslim American public opinion, sees skyrocketing disapproval of Biden since the start of the war, and Lajavarde hears how that and increased anxiety over treatment of the community affects people's political choices. Muslims in the U.S., they are very much aware of how Democrats are not to be leaned on. And I think they know what it's like to be ostracized and have no allies on either side of the aisle. Also at Michigan State, student Yusuf Abbas, whose family is Palestinian, says he's never been quick to talk politics. He always let others start those conversations. But he says the ongoing tragedy has prompted him to be more public. If someone is open-minded, we can sit down and discuss what's going on. Because if you're a Jewish or you're Israeli or if you're Palestinian or Muslim or Arab, it hurts both of us. But Abbas, a Democratic voter, says he doesn't hold out any real hope that Biden will bring meaningful change in the Middle East. 
Saba Saad is also a student at Michigan State. She was born in the West Bank and spent the first half of her life there. I've never really trusted the American government system, especially when it comes to Palestine, because they failed us so many times. But I never thought in my life that it would be this bad, this awful, this, the, the, like. That sense of hopelessness is pervasive in the Arab-American community. So Michigan House Majority Leader Abraham Ayash says he's using the skills he learned working on Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign to organize, to force Biden to act. We do have political power. We do have the ability to influence an election. And if you are not going to take that into consideration, simply using platitudes while your policies perpetuate violence and, and harm, uh, we will not stand by it. And Michigan, with some 200,000 Arab American voters, will be a high-stakes test of that power a year from now. Don Gagne, NPR News, Detroit. How do you mix an old-fashioned? Almost anywhere in the world, the answer is simple. Whiskey, bitters, and sugar with a citrus twist. Unless you are in, say, Madison, Milwaukee, or Oshkosh. Wisconsin brandy old-fashions. The Wisconsin old-fashioned. In Wisconsin, you don't call it a Wisconsin old-fashioned. It's just an old-fashioned. Wisconsin brandy old-fashioned. As YouTube bartenders will tell you, in Wisconsin, brandy replaces whiskey. The drink is customizable and can be topped with lemon-lime soda, sour mix, or club soda. According to Jeanette Hurt, author of the book, yes, a full book called Wisconsin Cocktails, the drink may be garnished with a cherry. Or do you want olives or pickled onions or pickled mushrooms? There's no wrong answer to this question. That's Hurt's TEDx talk on the subject. She's dug through the drink's history and says its origins are quite practical. Apparently, shipments of grain to Europe meant there was a lot of bad booze going around. Tavern owners were cited for putting bad booze into good booze bottles. Until the state's liquor distributors caught wind of a cache of good brandy and bought it all up. We started drinking our way through all those brandy barrels. There were 30,000 barrels that came gushing into our state at one time. That's enough to fill two and a half Olympic-sized pools. We were swimming in good brandy. And if you're a frugal pub owner, you can't let that go to waste. Cheers. Well, recently, Wisconsin lawmakers voted on a resolution declaring the brandy old-fashioned as the official state cocktail. I didn't know there was such a thing. Mr. Speaker, I am stirred to speak today. Representative Ryan Clancy is a fan of the brandy sweet old-fashioned, but he has thoughts on acceptable garnishes. The authors here suggested that savory garnishes such as olives and cocktail onions are acceptable in an old-fashioned. They are not. That is an abomination, Mr. Speaker. Tolerance and acceptance can only go so far. I still think that's gross. The bipartisan resolution was approved, and if lawmakers in Wisconsin can clink glasses across the aisle, maybe there's hope for the rest of us. I'll drink to that. (laughs) This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. The legacy of the man in black as a songwriter. The music and lyrics of Johnny Cash coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. And the Harvard Art Museums with the new exhibition, Objects of Addiction, 
Opium, Empire, and the Chinese Art Trade, now on view. HarvardArtMuseums.org. Lots of action on Wall Street today. The Dow grew by one and four-tenths percent. S&P had its best day since April. It gained one and nine-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq soared nearly two and four-tenths of a percent. Logan Airport's Terminal E is officially open after it was renovated. The international terminal, departure lounges, arrival areas, and concessions have all been redone. There's also an additional 390,000 square feet of new and shared space and several additional gates. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Burton's Grill and Bar. With Scratch Kitchens, customizing dishes for guests with allergies or dietary restrictions. Eight locations in Greater Boston, burtonsgrill.com. And Joy Street and Brick Bottom Artists Associations. See the work of over 80 artists at Joy Street and Brick Bottom Open Studios this weekend. Brickbottom.org slash events. When you get news alerts all day, it can be tough to get a handle on the full story. Get context and perspective live on the WBUR mobile app. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. Tonight, the Boston Bruins look to improve on their best-in-the-league record. They're in Buffalo to take on the Sabres. Game time is 7 o'clock. We've got some decent autumn days on the way. After a clear and cold night tonight, we should have sunshine move in for tomorrow. Highs about 50. Sunshine should come back on Thursday with temperatures coming close to 60. The time is 521. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including homeless shelters, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. It appears Congress is on track to avoid a government shutdown ahead of the Friday deadline. Look at that. Republican Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, over strong objections from some in his own party, proposed a short-term extension of government funding through early next year, one that is backed by House Democrats. We have broken the fever. We are not going to have a massive omnibus spending bill right before Christmas, and that will allow us to go through the appropriations process as it should be done. That's Johnson speaking to reporters earlier today. The House is expected to pass the bill later tonight. NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel is on Capitol Hill and joins us now. Hey, Eric. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so tell us more about what's inside this spending bill. So Speaker Mike Johnson's proposal extends current levels of funding for another two months. That's pretty normal, but it actually works in kind of a weird new way, where uh-huh. some parts of the federal government run out of money on January 17th. Some of the least controversial spending bills, like funding for veterans, agriculture, transportation, would expire first. Lawmakers okay. think it will be a little bit easier to pass those uh, long-term funding for those bills. Then it goes to the harder bills, including the Department of Defense and everything else. Those bills expire. Funding for those agencies expires on February 2nd. <laughs> the goal here is to move beyond the short-term bills and buy time for the House and Senate to pass the full of federal spending bills. Okay, but wait, this isn't how Congress normally funds the government, right? So why did Speaker Johnson 
decide to do it this way. So he was adopting an idea from hardline members of his own conference, folks in the House Freedom Caucus, in an effort to get their backing for a short-term funding measure. It's worth saying, though, they opposed this bill, upset that it doesn't cut spending or contain any conservative policy priorities. But measures like that would doom the bill in the Democratic-controlled Senate. So Speaker Johnson took an approach that was able to get Democratic support in order to keep the government open. And according to a new NPR poll that is coming out tomorrow, 67% of people think it's more important for Johnson to compromise rather than stand on principle. <laughs> Admittedly, Republicans are split on that in our poll respondents, as are Republican lawmakers in the House. Our poll also found that Americans would place more blame on Republicans than on Democrats and President Biden if the government were to shut down. Okay, so tell me this. Why would Democrats go along with this? Well, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he was happy to see that the Republican speaker backed off of the idea of funding cuts and introduced a so-called clean bill that Democratic lawmakers would feel comfortable supporting. Mm -hmm. That's a contrast to the speaker's first major piece of legislation, which tied a popular bipartisan idea, aid to Israel, to a conservative policy, cuts to the IRS, and effectively doomed the bill. Schumer says he'll now work with Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, the top Republican in the Senate, to get it through that chamber by Friday. Okay. So a Friday shutdown is not likely at this point, but, but, but does it seem like House Republicans can set aside their differences in order to pass the full spending bills before the next deadline comes up in just a few months? What do you think? It's going to be really hard is what I think. They already had to pull two spending bills before a vote last week because they didn't have enough Republican support to pass. In one case, moderates were upset over language restricting abortion access here in D.C., and even beyond the policy stuff, things are really, really tense here. This fall, we've had a funding fight, followed by a Republican leadership fight, followed by a funding fight. And all that tension is still simmering and occasionally bubbling over into physical confrontation. Hmm. So I'll just put it this way. If you think your Thanksgivings are tense, <laughs> knock back a Wisconsin old-fashioned and be glad you're not a House Republican. Nice. That is NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Elsa. Tens of thousands of demonstrators gathered on the National Mall here in Washington today. The rally was billed as a march for Israel. It was intended to show solidarity as Israel wages war in the Gaza Strip in response to the October attack by Hamas. NPR's Joel Rose was there and is now here. Hi, Joel. Hey, Ari. Uh, describe the scene for us. What was it like? Yeah, this march was arranged quickly by Jewish groups across the country. They brought busloads of people to the National Mall from New York in great numbers. But people came from even further away, places like Boston, Cleveland, Los Angeles. And a big part of the National Mall was just a sea of white and blue signs and Israeli flags under a heavy security presence, starting at the stage a few blocks from the U.S. Capitol, stretching nearly three quarters of a mile all the way to the Washington Monument. And what was the overarching message? Well, it was billed as a show of solidarity with Israel. Israeli President Isaac Herzog addressed the crowd by video from Jerusalem. We come together as a family, one big mishpacha, to march for Israel. There's no greater and more just cause than this. But that was only part of the message here. The organizers also wanted to denounce what they call a rise in anti-Semitism and hatred. And they wanted to push back against critics of Israel. Protesters around the world and here in the U.S. have called for a ceasefire in Gaza as the humanitarian crisis there deepens. And Israeli leaders have rejected those calls. So have many political leaders in the U.S. And it was interesting today to see the top leadership of both U.S. parties speaking at the event in front of the Capitol, including Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York and the new Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson of Louisiana, who got a rousing ovation for saying Israel should not agree to a ceasefire. 
They were part of a long list of passionate speakers. The rally was supposed to last two hours, but went way over that. And that list of speakers also included some parents of hostages who are still being held by Hamas in Gaza. What did those parents say? Yes, several mothers and other relatives of hostages who are, who are being held by Hamas. And it was a very emotional call not to forget about those hostages, including some who are, are very young and very old. Orna Nutra is the mother of Omer Nutra. He's a dual citizen of the U.S. and Israel, 22 years old from New York State, who is serving in the Israeli Defense Forces when he is believed to have been captured by Hamas and on October 7th. Omer, you're not just my beloved son. You touch so many in deep and profound ways. Bring them home. Bring them home. And you can hear the crowd on the mall there chanting, bring them home, hmm. bring them home. So those were some of the voices from the stage. What about voices in the crowd? What did you hear from people you spoke to? The people in the crowd had many different reasons for attending today. I heard a lot of concern about the hostages. Some uh, people at the protest or at the rally who identified very strongly with the state of Israel and its right to defend itself against Hamas's incursion. Here's Shira Sachs of Maryland, who has family in Israel who live near the border with Gaza. Israel needs to be able to defend itself. I think that it helps for everybody around the world to see the support that Israel has. But others were much more ambivalent, not only about attending the rally, but also about the way Israel is conducting the war in Gaza. Uh, I spoke to one young man named Yoni Schechter from New York City. Here's part of what he had to say. There's the anti-Semitism part, the, the hostage part, and just the vision for, for a peaceful future that's not just a warmongering rally. Despite those misgivings, Schechter still felt that it was important to be on the mall today and to be a, a part of this event. That is NPR's Joel Rose reporting on that rally of tens of thousands of people on the National Mall here in Washington, D.C. this afternoon. Thanks, Joel. You're welcome, Ari. This is NPR News. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. The town of Brookline has long had a reputation of strict zoning laws that can prevent new housing. A plan may change that if it passes. The plan tomorrow morning here at 90.9 WBUR. Start your day right here. Clear skies overnight tonight. Some gusty winds and cold temperatures tonight could dip to just below freezing. Tomorrow, sunny and breezy, inching up to about 50 degrees. Could make it to 60 degrees on Thursday, a nice day with sunshine back once again. It's 43 degrees in Boston at 530. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. WBUR has invested in building a relationship with us over decades. 
I think about this as a way to repay that. If we're able to make a difference with our giving that lives beyond us is something that's deeply satisfying to consider. John Davis and his wife Margot are leaving a legacy to WBUR to ensure a strong future. You can too at WBUR.org legacy. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In the Middle East, families of some of the roughly 240 hostages held in Gaza traveled to Geneva today with Israel's foreign minister, where they're holding talks with the head of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Meanwhile, NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Tel Aviv that Hamas has released a video of one of those hostages. In footage released by Hamas, a 19-year-old woman identifies herself on camera. Then it cuts to photos of her dead body. Hamas says she was killed in an Israeli airstrike. Afterward, Israel declared her a fallen soldier without specifying a cause of death. She's the only one of the hostages who's believed to have died in captivity. Four others were released and a fifth was rescued. NPR's Lauren Freyer, the Israeli military continues to warn residents of Gaza to flee the area and move to the south. Israel claims it uncovered a Hamas military compound beneath a children's hospital that was evacuated over the weekend. The fifth national climate assessment released today shows ocean habitats in the northeast are experiencing unprecedented changes, as Barbara Moran of member station WBUR reports. By 2050, many cold water species like American lobster and Atlantic herring are expected to decline in the Gulf of Maine as warm water fish like black sea bass and summer flounder move in. Commercial fisherman Bill Amaru has been fishing off Cape Cod for 50 years. He says tropical fish used to show up once in a while. And now we see them rather often and they're they're beginning to you know, call this home because it's it's a temperature range that they can tolerate. Report authors say the Gulf of Maine is warming about three times faster than the global average. For NPR News, I'm Barbara Moran in Boston. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Palestinian flag will be flying over North Andover's town common for the next three weeks. The town select board voted to allow it after a heated debate last night. The petition was filed by college student Selma Kayal. She spoke with WHDH last night. It's a flag that represents its people. It's a flag that represents a nation, the heritage of their people, their traditions, their culture. And it's not just, it, it doesn't represent a terrorist group. But Rabbi Idan Irelander, whose congregation is in North Andover, told WBUR that Hamas is the elected body in Gaza and Hamas conducted the attack on Israel. We cannot separate Hamas from the Palestinian people and therefore for many of us the Palestinian flag today unfortunately represents Hamas, represents hatred, anti-Semitism, war. An Israeli flag flew over the town's common last month. A series of bills that would legalize rent control and other tenant protections were in the spotlight on Beacon Hill today. As WBR's Walter Wolfman reports, lawmakers heard hours of testimony from advocates, renters, and landlords. Massachusetts voters banned rent control through a statewide ballot question nearly 30 years ago. But many now think it's time to bring it back as housing costs soar. Boston Housing Chief Sheila Dillon says the city gets calls from tenants being priced out of their apartments every day. These are heart-wrenching conversations as people have lived in their units for, for decades. But there's very little we can do without additional tenant protections. 
Opponents say rent control would slow much-needed housing production and hurt small landlords. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The State Sheriff's Association has bestowed 12 Outstanding Achievement Awards to members of law enforcement. It happened this morning at a ceremony at the State House that was the first of its kind in Massachusetts. Awardees include six correctional officers from the Middlesex Sheriff's Office who revived a colleague who was having a heart attack. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting where college-age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. Should be clear and dry tonight. A gusty wind, a cold one, in fact. Temperatures just below freezing. Tomorrow, sunny, breezy, inching up to about 50 degrees. 43 in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Scott Detrow. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. <laughs> Johnny Cash, in one way or another, dominated the American music scene for more than half a century, ever since he recorded his first song for Sun Records, Hey Porter. Hey Porter, hey Porter, would you tell me the time? Cash is most often identified as a country star, but much of his music transcended genres. He's one of just a few artists who have been inducted into both the Country Music Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If you it in the Johnny Cash's voice and his songs endure decades later. And 125 of the songs that Cash wrote are included in a new book put together by his son, John Carter Cash, along with Cash family historian Mark Stilper. I sat down with the pair recently to talk about the book and Johnny Cash's prolific songwriting. Early in Dad's life, songwriting, not all of his songs, but a lot of them were autobiographical. So it was a way for him to tell where he'd been, what he'd seen, and his own life experience. Five feet high and rising. It's about a flood that occurred when he was a boy. Well, the rails are washed out north of town. We got a head for higher ground. It related the history of America. And he would write songs out of inspiration, of love. You know, it's like I walk the line. As sure as night is dark and day is light, I keep you on my mind both day and night. It was a song that was needed in his life. He was on the road traveling all of a sudden, going from city to city, town to town. And Ian was a long ways away from his wife at home, Vivian. And so he wrote, I Walk the Line, as a direct communication to his wife. It was the truth of his life. And so it it was a way of self-expression. It was a way of telling his own tale. Um, You know, and and yeah, I mean, there were songs like Big River, you know, where he put himself in the fantasy of of the guy that's chasing the girl all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. Then I heard my dream was back downstream, cavorting in Davenport. 
when you call. You know, then there's 40 Shades of Green that connects, you know, with the Irish people still today. And you cannot tell someone in Ireland that that it's not an old standard that was written by someone Irish. From the fishing boats that dingle to the shores of Dunedee. Dad connected with people. He, he also connected through those words in ways that could tell the story of those people's lives and, of course, initially his own. That I'm, I'm so glad you said that because there's been so many Johnny Cash songs. Well, I hear it and I think, oh, that's probably covering an old standard. You know, that song sounds like it's been around forever. And then you look it up. Nope. It's a song that he wrote himself, but he could still tap into yeah. those same themes that so many songs that have been around America forever tap uh-huh. into magical mystical like the man comes around or redemption you know some of the gospel things that he that he wrote yeah it hits us as something that is an american standard i think because it is an american standard he is a voice uh, that's capable of relating the history of the 20th century america um to the public and uh, and to the world it's one of the last songs he wrote and i wanted to talk about it but since you mentioned it right now let's talk about it right now can can both of you kind of tell me the backstory of of the man comes around it's one of the last songs that he wrote I will say I think it's my favorite of his songs. Um, what what were the circumstances of, of putting that song down to paper? Well, it's my favorite of, of his songs because I was there when he wrote it. Dad had a very cool view of Christianity. What do you mean by cool? I don't know. But it, whether you're Christian or not, you can listen to The Man Comes Around and they could go good in a zombie movie and then it kicks ass, right? <laughs> yeah. The hairs on your arm will stand up. At the terror in each sip and in each sup. It's intense and it's powerful. And you don't have to be a Christian to, to love the music. It was a song of faith to him, but it was not written originally as intention of it being a Christian song, but my dad made it such for his own recording. My dad had a dream that the Queen of England came to him and said, Johnny Cash, you're like a thorn tree in a whirlwind. The whirlwind is in the for thee to kick against the pricks. Mark, those biblical undertones are, are a theme throughout Johnny Cash's entire life and his entire songbook. I mean, the, the book starts out with, with the song Belshazzar, which has such an interesting backstory of, of Cash deciding this is the song that I'm going to audition for Sam Phillips, head of Sun Records, discoverer of Elvis, creator of rock and roll in some sense. I'm going to come in and sing this 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 deep cut Old Testament story song. For he was weighed in the balance and found wanting. His kingdom was divided, couldn't stand. Here he is, a 22-year-old, and he is at the cusp. Finally got in the door. Finally got into the rock and roll Hall of Fame storied Sun Records, and he tells Mr. Phillips that he's going to sing a song about a dead Old Testament king. And as sincere as anybody could be, he didn't think that that was something that nobody would understand. It was such part of him and his fabric and his life and his upbringing that it was just as natural as can be. Now, Mark, John Carter told us his favorite song was The Man Comes Around. I'm wondering what your favorite song in this book is and why. Well, it's very, very interesting that my favorite song was a song that he never recorded. And it's the very last song in the book. 
It's called I Turn Around Twice. And he was saying to June, he never did think that they would grow old so gracefully. And one day she became his world. And he's giving us every human emotion that we hope to have, we're afraid to have, we deserve to have. And then when we have them, you know, it, it fulfills us. And, and that's what Johnny Cash did. He helped us fulfill ourselves. John Carter Cash, you talked about your favorite song. But on that note, talking about deeply personal songs, what song in this book do you think was the most personal to your dad? I mean, it would have to be something like redemption. It would have to be something, you know, that that he exposed himself in by showing his faith. From the hands it came down, from the side it came down, from the feet it came down and ran to the ground. Songs of Christian faith were everything to him because it was what he believed. And just as he walked into Sun Records and sang Belshazzar, at the end of his life, it was most important to him that he have a gospel record released, even though he was having all these hits with Rick Rubin. And so the album came out posthumously. It's called My Mother's Handbook. And so what's the most important song that he wrote? It was, I don't know, but it was the songs of faith. And it had to have been. That was his lifeblood. Through the fire and the flood clung to the tree and were redeemed by the blood. That's John Carter Cash along with Mark Stilper talking about their new book, Johnny Cash, Life in Lyrics. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Round the tree grew a vine on whose fruit I could dine. My old friend Lucifer came, thought to keep me in... You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In an effort to stay competitive in some sports, historically black colleges and universities are diversifying their rosters. Some say that means moving away from the reason these schools were founded to give African-American students an option for higher education. Julianne Virgin with member station WABE in Atlanta reports on the effect of international recruiting on HBCU tennis teams. The thud of rackets striking fluorescent yellow-green balls echoed throughout a tennis center near Atlanta during the HBCU National Championship in September. 17 historically black colleges and university tennis teams are competing in men's and women's singles and doubles, vying to become a national champion. But many of the players here are not African-American. I always wanted to play in the U.S. because I wanted like a scholarship and be able to be in a university here. Alejandra Hidalgo Vega is a sophomore at North Carolina Central University. Born and raised in Madrid, Spain, she began playing tennis at the age of six. Now she's on a full scholarship. I really enjoy being at HBCU. I have a lot of fun. Vega says she paid a Madrid-based recruiting service to help her land a full scholarship to an American university. Scouting athletes through third-party international sports recruiters has become a big practice in the U.S., including HBCUs. That's according to Dr. Ashley Brown Greer, who studies internationalization at historically black colleges. For HBCUs, that works two ways because now we're able to retain uh, top student athletic talent, and we're also able to diversify our student bodies. 20 years ago, just under 6,000 international student athletes were competing at U.S. institutions. 20 years later, that number has more than tripled, including at HBCUs. This recruitment trend does not sit well with coaches, 
who believe in the original mission of HBCUs to educate black Americans. We feel that there's a lot of black students that need the opportunity to go to college and play tennis. That's Gregory Green, head tennis coach at Tuskegee University. His recruiting philosophy is simple. Give black students a chance. Those are the ones we recruit and uh, we want to keep it home. This is HBCU and we're going to stick to that all the way through. Studies show tennis in the U.S. is diversifying. Nearly 10% of tennis players in this country are African-American, and for the first time ever, four black American players reached the quarterfinals of this year's U.S. Open. But there needs to be more talent growth, says coach Newt Christans, who leads the tennis program at Alabama State University. Tennis is an international sport. I would love to see more uh, African-Americans playing tennis and get to a level where they can play college tennis at the highest level. All seven players on ASU's roster are international students, most from European countries. But Christian says he is starting to see talented African-American players. But they need to go to the next three, four levels so that they can be in par with everyone else. Christian's international recruiting has won the school six national championships. As the landscape for collegiate athletics continues to evolve, including players getting paid for their name, image, and likeness, Athletic departments at HBCUs will have to find a way to balance winning at their sports with the reason why the universities were created in the first place. For NPR News, I'm Julian Virgin in Atlanta. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Inflation cooled last month, gasoline prices fell, and news of a smaller-than-expected jump in the cost of living triggered a rally on Wall Street. The positive economic news and what it tells us, coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org slash events. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts November 24th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. Cambridge Culinary... This is WBUR. We've got some decent autumn days on the way. After a clear and cold night tonight, should have sunshine move in for tomorrow. Highs about 50. Sun should come back on Thursday as temperatures come close to 60 degrees. Radio Lab comes to City Space Friday, December 8th for an immersive multimedia event exploring the history of cassette tapes and how they change the world. Get tickets at WBUR.org events. Boston's a big music town. Major acts play the big venues like MGM Music Hall or TD Garden. But there's also a lot of local talent and smaller theaters and clubs with live music every night. Here's another tip from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. If you want to catch live music around Boston, you've got your pick of genres. There's a thriving hip-hop scene with local artists like Sean Wire. Check it all up on me and I can show what the deal like. 
jazz at places like Wally's, Scullers, or the Beehive. A lively Irish folk scene in pubs across the city. Not to mention reggae and the underground punk scene. Check out our guide to arts and culture in Boston for where to find your vibe in the city. Go to WBUR.org slash field guide. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Isabella Murator at the New Jersey Institute of Technology says studying army ants comes with certain occupational hazards. They're very aggressive. They have venom, so they will sting you and they will bite you. It's not that bad. It's just that you're usually getting stung by hundreds of them at once. (laughs) As she has experienced firsthand, the ants are predators. And as they march through the forest, they gobble up insects, even frogs, lizards, and birds. But what's truly remarkable is when the ants encounter obstacles, like, say, a gap between leaves or branches, they build living bridges out of their bodies, hooking themselves together like a barrel of monkeys. The workers will string themselves across that gap, and then other workers will walk on top of them. Basically, they create shortcuts to make things easier for the other ants or just to allow them to traverse something that they otherwise couldn't. The bridges allow the ants to hunt more quickly and efficiently, but that comes at a cost. Because the ants that are acting as this structure are not able to also go out and collect prey, but they also have a benefit in terms of saving time for everyone else. Ants have small brains and don't use language. So how do they even make that cost-benefit analysis she describes? Well, Murator studied the ants' decision-making by deliberately placing obstacles in the ants' way as they navigated the forest. She filmed them, then analyzed the ant traffic. She says the ants build bridges where they get the greatest benefit for the least amount of bodies. She also found that a string of bridges can influence how much ant power the ants are willing to invest in each bridge. She presented her work at a meeting of the Entomological Society of America last week. Just like people, we don't just build one bridge, but we have to decide, you know, how is this whole road going to look like across many different obstacles. David Hu at the Georgia Institute of Technology has studied how fire ants use their bodies to build rafts. He says this type of work reveals how ants make collective decisions, which could have implications for swarms of robots. Who says, imagine dumping out a bucket of robot parts, which piece themselves together to solve complex problems. Ants are kind of a existence proof that, you know, such a robot would actually be able to survive and uh, have a lot of interesting problems to solve in the real world. Let's just hope those robots don't learn to bite and sting. Two of this year's most talked about movies could not be more different. Killers of the Flower Moon is the story behind killings of the Osage tribe in Oklahoma. Osage are the finest, wealthiest, and most beautiful people on God's earth. They outsmarted everybody. And Barbie is about, well, the iconic plastic doll and her friends. Hi, Barbie! Hi, Ken! As NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports, the films were both shot by the same cinematographer, Rodrigo Prieto. Rodrigo Prieto agrees his last two movies do seem antithetical, but there are some through lines. For instance, on both, he played around with an early cinematic technique called three-strip technicolor. And it's a very particular way of color that we've come to recognize from the movies of the 30s and 40s and 50s, even lots of the musicals of the time had this look to them, including The Wizard of Oz, things like that. He used the technique in Killers of the Flower Moon to shoot some scenes set in the 1940s. And then in Barbie, we needed to create a look for Barbie Land 
that would work well with all these different shades of pink. It was based on three-strip Technicolor that I had used on Kills of the Flower Moon, but here we called it Techno Barbie. Both movies were period pieces, so they needed a mid-century look. As a cinematographer, Prieto plays with color, light, composition. He's just such an incredible storyteller, and his style seems to be dictated by the story and by the characters and by the emotion. Barbie director-writer Greta Gerwig says she's long been a fan. Rodrigo is excellent, he's kind, he's rigorous, he's big-hearted. Like, he is the gold standard. The 58-year-old cinematographer was born in Mexico City, where he grew up making monster movies at home. He studied at the Centro de Capitación Cinematográfica, one of Mexico's most renowned film schools. And over the years, he's worked with many directors, from Pedro Almodovar to Spike Lee to Ang Lee. He shot Amores Perros in 2000, Frida and Eight Mile in 2002, Brokeback Mountain in 2005. I feel very fortunate to be able to jump from one genre to another and with such distinct directors and voices. Killers of the Flower Moon is the eighth film Prieto has shot with director Martin Scorsese. I was looking for a new uh, director of photography for the film I made, I think it was about 10 years ago now, Wolf of Wall Street. And um, he was recommended by a number of people. I think Alfonso Cuaron and Guillermo del Toro and uh, Inaritu. Scorsese describes Prieto as a quiet man with an excellent sense of humor who's open to experimentation. You know, we've been through some wild shoots. He never seemed to uh, feel that something couldn't be done despite earthquakes and typhoons. Scorsese says Prieto was undaunted by storms in Taiwan while shooting the 2016 film Silence. For Killers of the Flower Moon, Prieto came up with a way to show how the Osage tribe may have felt when they discovered oil on the land. In slow motion, Prieto's camera shows a group of men dancing as black gold rains down on them. Seeing how slowly these drops fall on their bodies, it's beautiful and it's very sad at the same time. And we've used this technique in other Scorsese movies, even Wolf of Wall Street, there are scenes that are with the same camera, very, very slow motion, you know, and it captures kind of the exuberance. Prieto says he filmed scenes with the Osage characters using natural light. By contrast, he shot scenes of the white European descendants with autochrome, a technique patented in the early 1900s by the Lumiere brothers. For Barbie, Prieto's cameras paid homage to the opening scene of 2001, A Space Odyssey. In a later scene, Barbie meets her creator in a surreal space. Don't worry, you're safe here. What is this place? Prieto lit the set to be like the white afterlife scenes in the 1978 movie, Heaven Can Wait. And when the side character, Alan, reacts in horror to his BFF, Ken, getting hit by a wave, Gerwig says Prieto filmed it like a scene from Jaws. It's a shot that Roy Scheider, when the kid gets eaten by the shark, and he, he looks up and the camera rushes in and then it zooms back. So it's almost like everything distorts. Gerwig and Prieto say they wanted Barbie Land to feel artificial, perfect, inside a box with painted skies and backgrounds, like a soundstage. In fact, one one key scene was inspired by 1950s musicals like Singing in the Rain. I'm just anywhere else be On the pink and blue painted set, Prieto swooped his rigs around as the Ken dolls danced and sang into the cameras. I was playing with the rhythm and with the color and they're all dressed in black so it's very graphic. 
It, it was um, just beautiful to also work with the choreographers and figure out the camera, how it would move, and, and then the big wide shot from above. Prieto also shot several Taylor Swift music videos, but he recently directed his first feature for Netflix, an adaptation of the classic Mexican novel Pedro Paramo. Consciously or not, I'm sure I used many of the things I learned with the directors that I've uh, been working with all these years, you know. I'm pretty excited about it. Prieto recently won a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Guadalajara Film Festival in Los Angeles. Many of his fans hope he follows that up with an Oscar. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films, presenting Napoleon, Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rappaport Foundation. WBUR's Deborah Becker moderates a discussion on teen mental health with a panel of experts, authors, and medical professionals exploring what schools, parents, and communities can do to help. Tomorrow at noon, register for this virtual event at RappaportFoundation.org. A Morning Edition host, Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Inflation in the U.S. last month fell to 3.2 percent. Good news, although it may not offset price hikes over the past two years. People have in their mind right now is, I want prices to go back to where they were in 2021. That's not going to happen. These prices are probably there forever. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. What today's report from the Labor Department does show coming up. Dozens of U.S. diplomats and aid experts have been expressing dissent over U.S. policy in the Middle East. Scientists are starting to understand why brain fog, fatigue, and pain can linger for years after a person first contracted COVID. And school will be back in session in Andover tomorrow. Late this afternoon, teachers in the school district reached an agreement to end the teacher strike that left classes canceled for three days. It's 6.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is slated to meet China's President Xi Jinping tomorrow in California. As NPR's Asma Hollywood reports, it's their first meeting in a year and comes after months of tension. Biden was asked by reporters how he would define success when he meets with Xi, and he had this to say. To get back on a normal course of corresponding, being able to pick up a phone and talk to one another is a crisis. Plus, the president added, being able to make sure the U.S. and Chinese militaries still have contact with one another. That open communication took a major hit after former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi raised hackles in Beijing 
Beijing by visiting Taiwan last year. We're not trying to decouple from China. But we're, what we're trying to do is change the relationship for the better. This meeting also comes as tensions over trade have continued with export controls and tariffs. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. Tens of thousands of supporters of Israel rallied today in Washington, D.C. on the National Mall. Their march part of an effort to voice support for Israel in its war against Hamas. The war in Gaza was sparked by a bloody October 7th attack by the militant group that killed more than 1,200 people in Israel. Among the politicians pledging support, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Mike Johnson. More than 11,000 have died so far in Gaza, many of them civilians, including thousands of children. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is continuing to defend himself and his administration amid an FBI probe into his 2021 campaign. Agents searched the home of Adams' chief fundraiser and have also taken phones and computers from members of his administration. But Adams says his staff has followed the rules. I'm not going to speculate on uh, where we are. I'm not going to speculate on that. Uh, I know what I tell my team all the time. Follow the law. A search warrant obtained by the New York Times indicated authorities are looking at whether Adams' campaign conspired with the Turkish government to receive illegal campaign contributions from foreign sources. Scientists are beginning to understand how long COVID affects the brain and nervous system. NPR's John Hamilton reports on what they're learning. COVID-19 usually starts in the lungs, but Dr. Ziad Al-Ali of Washington University in St. Louis says it doesn't stop there. Unfortunately, long COVID as we know it now, it can affect nearly every organ system, including the brain. One reason may be that the infection weakens the barrier that usually separates the body and brain. COVID also triggers an immune response that can lead to inflammation in the brain and nervous system. The result appears to damage the brain's wiring in areas that control everything from memory to heart rhythm. And the effect on the brain can persist for months or even years after a person has apparently recovered from COVID. John Hamilton, NPR News. Stocks soared on Wall Street today. The Dow rose 489 points. The Nasdaq was up 326 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Teachers and students are set to head back to school tomorrow in Andover. The Andover Teachers Union and the district reached a tentative contract agreement late this afternoon. The new agreement goes to a ratification vote tonight. The three-day strike began Friday. Classes have been canceled since then. One of the main issues was salary increases. Harvard Medical School is not accepting donations of bodies for research, at least not for now. This is after the former director of the morgue at Harvard was accused earlier this year of stealing donated body parts and selling them. WBR's Ali Jarmanning has more on the donation program and on the status of a review of the thefts from the morgue. Harvard commissioned a review of its anatomical gift program back in June. It's supposed to recommend ways to better safeguard donor bodies. That report has twice been delayed. A Harvard spokesperson said it will be released, quote, in the coming weeks. In the meantime, the school has paused any new donations, as noted in the program's voicemail. If you are calling to report the death of a registered donor, please note that we are not accepting donations at this time. Harvard says the pause isn't impacting the anatomy labs and should be lifted soon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. Harvard is referring families of those who had planned to donate bodies to Harvard to Tufts Medical School instead. A Plymouth family that was trapped for several weeks in Gaza is back home in Massachusetts. 
The Shafi family arrived at Logan Airport this morning. Hassem and Sana Shafi and their three young children became trapped in Gaza after fighting broke out in the region in early October. The family made its way to Egypt earlier this month. As the Gulf of Maine warms, scientists expect cold water species such as lobster, cod, and Atlantic heron to decline. That's according to the fifth National Climate Assessment, which was released today. WBR's Barbara Moran has more about the changes to our coastal waters. The Gulf of Maine is warming about three times faster than the global average. And for a while, that led to a bumper crop of lobster, says Kathy Mills, a research scientist at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. Water temperatures were warming up and it moved temperatures into a really sweet spot for lobster. Mills is also one of the report's authors. And she says now the water is getting too warm for lobster and the population will decrease. Not to a level where it would be viewed as a crash, but back to levels that we were familiar with in the early part of the 2000s. As lobster move to colder waters, warm water fish like black sea bass are moving in. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Clouds should make an exit tonight, leaving a clear sky, cold winds overnight, down to about 31 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny, dry, slightly milder than today, about 50 degrees. Thursday, sunny skies. We could hit 60, maybe even higher on Friday. 43 now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Coming up, our film critic takes a look at what's making 2023 such a great year for women-led films. It's not just Barbie, but first... Some good news for anyone planning to hit the road next week for Thanksgiving. Falling gasoline prices. That's right, gas prices dropped 5% in October. That helped slow down overall inflation last month. And pump prices have continued to fall during the first two weeks of November as well. For more on all of this and on the larger inflation story, we're joined now by NPR's Scott Horsley. Hey, Scott. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so why are gas prices lower now? We typically see some drop in gas prices uh, this time of year because with the exception of the holiday weekend, people are not typically driving as much. Crude oil prices have also come down thanks to weakness in the Chinese economy and easing fears of a wider war in the Middle East. So put that together, there are now 11 states where the average price of gas is under $3 a gallon. Wow. AAA's Aixa Diaz says prices nationwide could drop by another dime a gallon between now and Thanksgiving, just in time for the nearly 50 million people who are planning holiday road trips. AAA has found that gas prices don't really keep people back from traveling, even when they're higher. They just make adjustments in their budget in other areas. But when gas prices are lower, it's certainly a welcome sight for drivers as they're passing by gas stations. And some more good news for travelers. Airfares were also down last month, thanks in part to falling jet fuel prices. And the cost of hotel rooms in October dropped by almost 3%. Huh, good news. But but how much did that help lower overall inflation, you think? Inflation cooled off considerably uh, in October. Consumer prices last month were up 3.2% from a year ago. That is the smallest annual increase in over two years. Prices were essentially flat between September and October. 
Uh, the sharp drop in gas prices was a big part of that, but we also saw falling prices for things like new and used cars. Uh, rents are still going up, but not as fast as they had been. Uh, economist Kathy Bosjancic says the general slowdown in inflation is a good sign that the Federal Reserve is on track to get inflation back down to its target of 2%. We do think it's still going to continue to be gradual, but this is, this is a good outcome for the Federal Reserve. They would take victory that they didn't take a harsh recession to bring inflation down. You know, the Fed tends to focus on so-called core inflation, which strips out food and energy prices that tend to bounce around a lot. Mm-hmm. Core inflation is considered a better measure of longer-term movements in the economy. By that yardstick, prices last month were up 4% from a year ago. And again, that's the smallest increase in more than two years. But, but wait, is the Fed ready to say that it has won the battle against inflation then? No, not yet. Uh, the central bank is still on alert for any sign that strong consumer spending or economic growth might rekindle higher inflation. Fed officials also acknowledge that even when they do get inflation all the way back down to 2%, and we're not there yet, that won't necessarily mean prices go back to their pre-pandemic levels. It just means that prices won't be going up as fast. And that's why even with this drop in inflation, a lot of people are still grumpy. <laughs> But Elsa, you know who is not grumpy? (laughs) Investors uh, who are betting that the Federal Reserve is done raising interest rates. They were already betting that way before today's better-than-expected inflation report, and they're even more confident in it now. Uh, That uh, notion that interest rates may have topped out has sparked a rally in the stock market for the last couple of weeks, and that continued today with the Dow Jones Industrial Average soaring almost 500 points. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you so much, Scott. You're welcome. Some U.S. diplomats and aid staff are objecting to U.S. policy in the Middle East, and they're calling for a ceasefire in Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza. It's not clear if the opposition is widespread within the U.S. government, but Biden administration officials say they are talking to staff and reaffirming Israel's right to respond to the October 7th Hamas attacks, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Retired diplomat Gina Abercrombie Winstanley says she's fielded many questions from current staff about whether or not to sign on to dissent cables or letters. Her advice is to make sure the language is tempered and there's really room for debate. That's a reasonable question to ask as we see, you know, whether it's academia or professional spaces that emotions are so high that measured thoughtful, informed discussions are increasingly hard to come by. Abercrombie Winstanley, who recently worked on diversity issues at the State Department, says there is a lot of unease among U.S. diplomats about what she called President Biden's very tight bear hug with Israel as Israel's campaign in Gaza ramped up. As this goes on, this is not just Israel's war, but the U.S. and Israel's. The State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development won't say how many objections they've received or how many of their employees have signed on. USAID officials have been meeting with staff across the Middle East to hear their concerns. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been meeting with a wide range of employees, too. He encourages people to provide feedback. He encourages people to speak up if they disagree. It doesn't mean that we're going to change our policy based on their disagreements. He is going to take their recommendations and make ultimately what he thinks is the best judgment and make his recommendations to the president about what we ought to do. Miller says Blinken has done a lot of work to get humanitarian assistance into Gaza and push for humanitarian pauses. One of the newest letters from political appointees across the government says the U.S. should call for a ceasefire instead. 
The State Department's dissent channel goes back to the Vietnam War days and allows public servants to express their views privately. More recently, they've addressed Afghanistan, Syria, and the Trump administration's Muslim ban. Retired diplomat Pete Romero says the dissent on Gaza is unusual because there are so many letters floating around. This has completely changed now because you've got uh, all of these dissent channels uh, or messages that leak to the public. And in this toxic partisan environment that we've got now, it's really difficult to have that kind of exchange that the dissent channel was designed for. Romero is focusing on dissent in his next podcast, The American Diplomat, and says young people in particular are asking how to have a real debate about Israel and still be team players. Abercrombie Winstanley says she knows that emotions are high, but says the job of a diplomat is to find the way forward. As opposed to casting blame or focusing on the terrible things that have happened terrible things that have happened to Israelis and terrible things that have happened to Palestinians. Both of those things are true. It's our job to figure out or help figure out a way forward. So far, just one State Department official has quit over U.S. policy toward Israel. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. It was a hot pink summer at the movies. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. And critic Bob Mondello says you're not imagining things if you sense that Hollywood's fall has also been led by women. Nuns, pop singers, superheroes, there have been 11 weekends so far since Labor Day, and in more than half of them, the number one film in cinemas not only starred a woman, but for all practical purposes had no significant male role. Something doesn't feel right. A demonic nun terrorized a Catholic girls' school through most of September in The Nun 2. It's okay to be scared. I'm scared, too. Pop star Taylor Swift then revived everyone's spirits in October with her Eras Tour concert film. Are you ready for it? And now November is being rescued by not one, not two, but three female superheroes in The Marvels. We're a team. Oh, no, 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 we're not a team. We're not a team. <gasps> team or not, they and their fellow movie heroines have easily outdistanced the male-led number one fall films at the box office. In fact, they've had an impact on ticket sales this year that, if not quite unprecedented, is at least noteworthy. Barbie, all by herself, contributed $1.4 billion to Hollywood's bottom line worldwide. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Disney's Little Mermaid remake brought in another half billion plus. Something's starting right now. Taylor Swift and Nun 2 each contributed roughly a quarter billion dollars, and though the Marvels is busting fewer blocks than hoped, it's still bringing in enough that those five films alone will have made close to three billion dollars this year, making them decisively. Now, it's possible to read too much into this. In each of the weeks that a woman-centered film led the pack, most of the other films in the top ten were centered on males. And with Hollywood still recovering from the pandemic, box office revenues totaling $25 billion last year, $3 billion is still a fraction of the industry's business. Still, it says something that the top moneymakers more than half the time this fall have been women. Some things have been happening that might be related. They are, you might argue, the result of something Best Actress winner Frances McDormand set in motion five years ago in her 2018 acceptance speech at the Oscars. If I may be so honored to have all the female nominees in every category stand with me in this room tonight, the actors, Meryl, if you do it, everybody else will, come on. 
the filmmakers, the producers, the directors. Dozens of women stood, and it has changed the landscape a bit. The Marvels is directed by a woman, as was Barbie, directed by Greta Gerwig, who may well get her second directing nomination from the Academy. So was Saltburn, opening this week, which might get a second nomination for Emerald Fennel, all of whom took heed, as did many others, of the way McDormand closed out her speech, urging everyone to insist on more diversity behind the camera by adding a clause to their contracts. I have two words to leave with you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, inclusion rider. Drawing direct lines of cause and effect can be tricky, but the Motion Picture Academy subsequently introduced inclusion standards for awards consideration, and while some have wondered whether these strategies are effective, to take just one measure, according to the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, women had substantially more leading or co-leading roles than usual in last year's biggest box office hits, 44%, a historic high. Might that have happened anyway? Sure, it might have, as Hollywood's Kens would Here. probably argue. Let me show you. Here, let me show you. Here, let me show you. But do we really want to give them the last word? Don't blame me, blame Mattel. They make the rules. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Coming up on Marketplace, how Americans' walking habits have changed since the start of the pandemic. That's starting at 6.30 tonight. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. This morning, news came that inflation is down. This afternoon, Wall Street closed way up. The Dow grew by one and four-tenths percent. S&P had its best day since April. It gained one and nine-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq soared nearly two and four-tenths of a percent. ED, EMD Serono is moving its headquarters from Rockland to the Seaport District of Boston. Serono is the American drug development arm of German company Merck. It develops therapies for oncology, MS, and fertility patients in the U.S. There are about 400 people at the Rockland facility now. The company says all will keep their jobs, although many will work remotely or hybrid. Serono says it will maintain its global research and development hub in Billerica. And Logan Airport's Terminal E is officially opened after it was renovated. The international terminal, departure lounges, arrival areas, and concessions have all been redone. There's also an additional 390,000 square feet of new and shared space and several additional gates. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen, now accepting orders and helping you plan for your holiday catering needs. Learn more at freshcitykitchen.com. And La Cuchara, serving modern Latin American fare at the Melrose Cafe, and now a new location with table service open in Beverly. Drop-off lunch catering available. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Some nice autumn days on the way, clear and cold tonight, down around freezing. And then for tomorrow, sunshine through the day, high temperatures about 50 degrees. Sun should stick around for Thursday with temperatures coming close to 60. 42 now in Boston at 621. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens, supporting local clean energy and accessing the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. 
and MGM Music Hall at Fenway, presenting The Saw Doctors on Friday, July 12th and Saturday, July 13th. Tickets at mgmfenwaymusichall.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Months or even years after getting COVID-19, some people still have neurological symptoms like pain, fatigue, and brain fog. It started to occur to me that this could be permanent. You know, this might be as good as it gets. NPR's John Hamilton reports on what scientists are learning about how long COVID affects the brain and nervous system. When the pandemic struck the U.S. in 2020, thousands of nurses got sick. Michelle Wilson was at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. I worked in the PACU, which is the pre and post surgery. I got people ready for surgery and woke them up after their surgeries. And I loved that job, it was great. Wilson got COVID in November. When it got bad, she went to the emergency department at her own hospital. I had bilateral pneumonia and I was in sepsis by that time. My blood pressure was really low and I had irregular heartbeat and I got admitted upstairs for a couple of days. The infection was affecting her lungs and also her brain, including circuits that control blood pressure and heart rhythm. Today, three years later, Wilson still isn't back at her nursing job. One reason? Her memory. You know what? I forgot your question. I forgot where I was going. Uh, oh. <laughs> and this happens. I have trouble with word retrieval, concept retrieval, and sometimes, like, remembering where I was going. So do other long haulers. Long COVID affects millions of people in the U.S., and many, if not most, have neurological symptoms. Scientists say one reason is that COVID seems to weaken the barrier that usually separates the body and brain. Dr. Ziad Al-Ali sees lots of long COVID patients in his work at Washington University School of Medicine and the VA healthcare system, both in St. Louis. Recovery is rare, and when you talk deeply to patients, they've actually adjusted to a new baseline. They used to walk the dog, you know, two blocks, and now they do only half a block. They used to go to a couple dinners a week with friends. Now they only do once a month. Early in the pandemic, doctors saw what COVID could do to internal organs. But Elalise says it soon became clear that the damage doesn't stop there. Unfortunately, long COVID, as we know it now, it can affect nearly every organ system, including the brain. When that happens, patients report a wide range of symptoms. Alali says about 40% have trouble sleeping at night or staying awake during the day. People experience sleep disturbances. And as a result, they wake up fatigued, even minimal exertion, you know, puts them into a state of you know, profound fatigue. And poor sleep, he says, can also contribute to pain. Pain is a big deal. And it's not really only, oh, my wrist is hurting or my knee is hurting. It's really almost like the, the whole body aches. Michelle Wilson, the nurse, says when she first came home from the hospital, she was in agony. The pain across my chest and in my arms was so bad that I slept on this couch like this with pillows under both arms because I couldn't stand my arms to touch my chest. Now, Wilson is able to do things like make breakfast or take a shower, but she still hurts, which could signal ongoing inflammation or damage to nerve cells that sense pain. Wilson's doctors aren't sure. That's because scientists are just beginning to understand what COVID does to the brain and nervous system. Dr. Troy Torgerson is at the Allen Institute for Immunology in Seattle. There's still a ton we don't know, so I would say we're still a little ways away, but we're nibbling away at it bit by bit. Torgerson and a team of researchers studied 55 people who had symptoms at least 60 days after a COVID infection. The team analyzed blood samples, looking for proteins that signal inflammation somewhere in the body. We saw persistent 
ongoing immune activation in about half of the long COVID patients that we studied. Torgerson says it's not always clear what's causing the immune system to respond. But once it does, it can affect the brain even if the virus itself doesn't infect brain cells. For example, immune cells or antibodies from the body may cross into the brain and damage neurons. Or the infection may activate a special set of immune cells in the brain itself. Torgerson says the symptoms of long COVID can resemble those of autoimmune diseases, which occur when the immune system mistakenly attacks healthy cells. We certainly see brain fog in other diseases. So, for instance, in lupus, it's one of the signs of neurological lupus. Fatigue is another common symptom in autoimmune disease and something Michelle Wilson deals with every day. Sometimes I am less able to do something than my 87-year-old mother. She is the one who's like always telling me to sit down and she's running up the stairs for me so that I don't have to do it. And that feels terrible. To understand how long COVID affects a human brain, scientists have been studying mice. Dr. Robin Klein of Washington University in St. Louis has been working with mice that develop a mild version of the disease. And those animals do have cognitive deficits a month after they were infected. They no longer have virus. They're no longer ill but they can't remember and recognize things. Klein says in these animals, the infection appears to weaken the blood-brain barrier, allowing the body's immune response to affect brain cells. She says the result is inflammation that causes subtle but significant changes in the brain. There's not a lot of dead cells. It's not like there's a multitude of dying neurons. What there is, is there's elimination of the connections between neurons. In other words, synapses, the brain's wiring, which is critical to memory and thinking. Klein suspects that inflammation is causing a similar kind of damage in the brains of people who get long COVID. And she says this can occur even in people who don't get very sick. You and I may handle different viruses differently, and I may end up getting more inflammation in my brain than you because we have a different genetic makeup. Klein says one way to protect the brain during an infection may be drugs that reduce inflammation. And studies to test that idea are already underway. In the meantime, she says, vaccination offers a way for people to reduce their risk of long COVID. People like Michelle Wilson, though, are hoping for treatments that will repair their ailing brains. Before getting COVID, the only medication Wilson took was for a thyroid condition. Now she relies on a daily cocktail of prescription drugs to control conditions like nerve pain. I'm on uh, three medicines for that. And then it also gave me high blood pressure and tachycardia, so I'm on some cardiac meds for that. When I ask Wilson which drugs, she pushes herself out of her chair to fetch her pill organizers. So this is so like, you So you are showing me not one, but, but two, two different boxes of yeah. meds. Morning, noon, night, and bedtime. And that's what I take on a day. Until researchers come up with something better. John Hamilton, NPR News. And tomorrow on All Things Considered, Zach Condon, the creative force behind the band Beirut, lost his voice in 2019, then found it again in the long, freezing cold night of Norwegian winter.
On this record, I really allowed myself a lot of vocal freedom because I was trying to enjoy it and, and really savor the moment. The music he made there, his new album, Had Cell. Come back for that conversation tomorrow on All Things Considered. You can listen on the radio, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com.